Coming to you live from the Wild Goose Festival, it's Ask Science Mike Live! You've got questions, he's got answers. Even though he may not understand, he'll talk anyway. You've got problems, he won't solve them. But he'll talk and talk and talk until he's blue in the face. Science made their life. If you could reach into any science fiction universe you want and pull one piece of tech into 2019, what would it be and why? And secondly, if you could pick one person in your life to be your Patronus, who would it be? <laughs> uh, if I could pick any tech to make real, it would be... Um the replicators from the Star Trek Next Generation universe. Because maybe if our species had definitive proof that life isn't a zero-sum game, we'd stop being such cool assholes to each other. It's no question. By the way, just so we're clear, this is real. There's actually enough food on the planet for everybody right now. It's already there. We basically have replicators. So, yeah, it'd be replicators. You, did you say person to be my Patronus? Yes. In your life. Person in your life. What's a Patronus? What's a Patronus? Oh my God. <laughs> Are you telling me someone listens to Ask Science Mike and doesn't know a Patronus? I'm not shaming you. I'm just surprised. <laughs> a Patronus is part of a spell in the Harry Potter universe. It is a uh, magical temp temporary entity that manifests positive emotional energy and its primary use is um, repelling dementors, which are emotionally vampiric supernatural entities. So, typically a Patronus is an animal. I like to talk about Patronuses because white people like to say spirit animal and that's appropriation and pretty fucked up to native communities. If you're a white person, don't talk about your spirit animal unless it's literally in the context of like a Native American person is bringing you into a ritual because you have that deeper relationship. Otherwise, talk about your Patronus because that is the whitest thing in the world. So, uh, but now we're doing a little twist where a Patronus is my person in my life. It would be my daughter, Macy without question because she has the zeal for life and the unshakable confidence that she is a dear, wonderful, and beautiful person. And my goal for the last few years has been to be more like Macy. Hello, beloved. Hey, Kevin. <laughs> we, it's fine. Um, so you and me, we've talked a lot about how we're taking care of ourselves these days because life is hard and, you know, mental health, all the shit, et cetera. What are you, what are you doing right now for self-care? Uh, what's your, what are your practices, if you have any? Okay, yeah, that's a really good one. I've only had a couple episodes since the hospital. Um, so I recently was in the hospital, a little heart disease action. Uh, I've got something called pericarditis. It's an inflammation around the membranes of my heart. I have very clear instructions from a cardiologist that if something causes me chest pain, stop immediately. 
we started talking a lot about that dear and beautiful human Rachel Held Evans in the last session, and I realized, oh, the pericarditis isn't gone. Um, so one of the things I'm doing is paying attention to my body and not pushing through pain. Yeah. Kevin, where'd you go? Oh, sorry. Go, good. I'm like, I'm like trying to talk to you. and sorry, super. No, it's okay. You said I found you. Face blindness. Okay. Um, so I'm listening to my body. I'm responding. The other thing I'm doing is resting. Since I left the ad world to become a podcaster, I never stop working ever. Ever. I'll be like, yeah, I'm going to take it real easy this weekend. I'm only going to like record for four hours on Sunday. And uh, a medical professional looked at pictures of my heart and said, hey, you're going to die unless you rest. And I don't mean eventually. I mean a couple months. Right? We, we, you have severe enough inflammation that's actually restricting the oxygen supply to your heart, and we're getting cardiac stress hormones in your blood results. Okay, so I've been resting. But my cardiologist is very smart, and she said, you strike me as a workaholic. So if I tell you to rest, you're going to do that for about 20 minutes, and then you're going to realize that you can't regulate your feelings resting. You're going to need work to escape into. She says, so I'm going to give you some rest projects. Number one, plant a vegetable garden. And by plant, I mean be around while your family plants a vegetable garden. And then your task is to keep it watered. I'm autistic. It takes a lot of CPU cycles every day to be like, is it time to water? Is it time to water? Is it time to water? That's one. Number two is uh, I've been bird watching. I thought that'd be a huge, everybody'd be like, yes! It turns out it's like kind of an obscure hobby for people in their 40s. <laughs> I try to be ahead of the curve. Like, I honestly think people in their 80s just like know life. They, they just are not performative ever. There's like, my feet hurt, I wear comfortable shoes. Fuck you. <laughs> I'm hungry for dinner at 4.45. I eat then, then I go to bed, because who am I trying to impress? <laughs> Fuck you. So, um... By the way, is there anything more beautiful than women getting old enough to just go like, yeah, I'm just done with the patriarchy. <laughs> like, I'm literally just done. Uh, so, I watched birds, which for me meant like an unfathomable amount of research into local indigenous and invasive Southern California bird species. Placing the feeders in a way that maximized the benefits to local species while not supporting invasive species. And then creating mixtures and different ratios of bird seed to attract the birds I wanted to see. Because my goal was, like Pokemon, to catch them all. So I've had every single species, native species of bird, in the San Gabriel Valley visit my feeders already. I log them. I... I spend hours a day, every day, looking out my window with the birds. I set up a bird fountain with a drip. They love it. The birds know me so well now that when I walk outside, most of them don't fly away anymore. And I was out watering my garden, which is my other favorite thing. And my favorite dove, I have a favorite dove who I can recognize. To be clear, I'm face blind and can't recognize my friends if they show up in the wrong context but I know this dove really well. So the dove came and like landed right here, which is getting pretty normal, because they know like after I put the seed out, the little birds come, they knock the seed on the ground, then the doves eat from the ground. 
But I saw it, I was watering that way, and I didn't want to wet the dove and scare it, so I turned the, the hose this way and started to spray another plant, at which point the dove hopped down and hopped into the water stream. But I, being a loving and sensitive person, said, this water stream is too intense for this dove's foliage, so I switched my handheld sprayer to Mister, and then misted a dove for like 20 minutes. <laughs> Sex is great, but have you ever misted a dove? That is like the most fabulous, tender, gentile, gentile, no, gentle act, tenderness. My friends, I am killing the patriarchy single-handedly. I wash doves by hand. Um, love your work and um, really enjoyed your episode on typology because I'm a fellow yes. Enneagram 9 and so I was just listening to your last session and as you were talking about some of the things you've been working through over these past couple years I was curious if the Enneagram has played a role in some of the things you're uncovering or if it's helped you to to recognize some of these things that have played a part in the unravelings and the the challenges. As I was listening to you in the last session, some of the things you were saying were resonating with me as, as a nine, like not yeah. you know, putting everybody else first and, and saying, no, no GoFundMe, everyone else, not me. I don't, I don't exist. That's how I, I always frame it yeah. as like, I don't exist. Yeah. So I was just curious if that has played a role in anything in the last couple years. I have such a mixed relationship with the Enneagram. I think it's like helpful. I think it's the new like purpose-driven life for progressive post-evangelicals, right? Like it's just, we're like, well, we don't have systematic theology anymore. What if I could reduce myself to a number? Would that be restrictive enough? And I've pondered it a lot, right? Like why, what is it with white people in the Enneagram? What in the world? My, like, and I hated it first, but I didn't hate it because it was a white person thing. I was like, there's no clinical evidence to support the validity of the Enneagram for diagnosing or treating mental conditions. But we grew up in the church, and the church was really restrictive, and painfully so as we grew. But, God, it gave us some boundaries. And I think the church acted as like a leg brace for a lot of us. And it like restricted our movement but we also couldn't stand without it. So we all took off our leg braces and <laughs> what do we do now? I continue to lie on the stage exclusively for comedic effect. Uh, sometimes the laughs miss. So I think what the Enneagram can be in a bad way is a new way to like restrict yourself and be like, there we go. Good, okay. And I think what that looks like is every person you meet, like, hi, I'm a seven. What number are you? And that's like a bypass for relational intimacy and hearing stories and learning about people. On the other hand, the Enneagram keeps freaking me out because it's like a good predictor of my behaviors. So I've just like, like, is it bullshit? Is it great? Where I'm at with the Enneagram is like, 
in conjunction with people who've had like a lot of training in the Enneagram, I really enjoy using it for a tool of personal exploration. I don't like living by numbers. So when the Enneagram says, you have a tendency to ignore yourself, my goal is to acknowledge that and internalize it so much that I can literally forget the Enneagram exists again and not like just live in that systematic number-based model. And I'm also really careful to not be like, oh, she's totally a four. <laughs> That's the thing that concerns me more than when we limit our experiences when we like, like, it, haven't we learned post-Christians and progressive Christians that locking people in categorical boxes is oppression yet? Yeah. That also is true if you make someone a four and everything they do is so four that you just can't even right now. So like I go on topology, I love topology. I, you know, I've got a friend, Annie Diamond, who like whenever she does the Enneagram, I'm like, yes! My friend Mickey is like studying the Enneagram. I'm like, I can't wait, because she's gonna be the best at it ever. So, but in the last few, the last year for me has been like, what do good therapeutic practices look like for me to improve my health so that I last longer and can engage more productively in fighting the near universal marginalization and oppression of people based on category. Uh, and the Enneagram has been the spice and not the soup in that journey. Hey Mike, uh, my name is Parker and my question is, um, do you have any advice for college students slash college age students in 2019? Uh, no, I don't. <laughs> do, 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 do. No, no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Context. I'm a data-driven person. What do I know about college-aged people today? They don't doubt climate change and they're working to fight it. Regardless of their faith or political orientation, they accept universal human equality as a baseline expectation. They're the first wave of the Gen Z who's like, gender and orientation labels? The fuck is that? <laughs> like, <laughs> my whole platform like started as like, hey, what if millennials don't suck? Like. What if it's actually boomers that suck? And what if it's like Gen X apathy as a response to boomers that was a problem? And maybe like my platform starts like millennials, like you're fine. I actually think you're great. So college age students is quite the opposite. It's like, what do you want us to do? My goal is to get out of the way as fast as humanly possible of the generation who will have to deal with the ecological debt in this world. Team AOC, oh my God. Like, can we, can we constitutionally switch the requirement for president so that no one over the age of 35 can be president? I am 41 years old. For a significant period of my life, I was an active participant in the oppression and marginalization of queer people. That's all there is to it. And I can try to do better now, and boy, do I try. 
But none of that erases the fact of how most of my life was spent. I am a natural born consumer. Oh my God, Amazon Prime. So even though I understand like the significant environmental costs of Amazon Prime, and I understand the total destruction of the local labor economy of Amazon Prime, I still get Prime Now packages every day because I don't want to drive to the store like some kind of animal. <laughs> I was raised in a generation where all colors of the rainbow are equal. We are in a post-racial utopia called America. And I love everybody as long as they act as white as I do. Um, so, so I do have a advice for people your age. Don't listen to a word anyone my age or older says unless those words come from a place of admitting the fault and harm we have caused and are born out of a desire to encourage and empower you as maybe the last best hope to rescue human life on this planet. So, hi, my name is Holly, and I eloped with my wife in March, and our wedding has thank you, and um, our wedding hashtag was hashtag when quant meets qual, um, <laughs> um, which means quantitative or qualitative for people who aren't nerds. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> literal mist in my eyes from we that. We had to explain it to half of the people that came to our like wedding reception in July. Um, <laughs> So my question is, I am, I'm a, I'm a, I love Jesus. I love Jesus so much. And I, I love worship music, not the, like, Jesus is my boyfriend worship music, but, like, the John Mark McMillan, I'm screaming, I'm naked, like, show yourself kind of music. And I love, like, the ecstatic part of it, and I'm contemplative. And she really likes Siddhartha, but she's not Buddhist, and she's contemplative, but she is amazing and has dug into Christian philosophy for my sake because she wants to honor my God and myself. So... My question for you is, I know in your book, Finding God in the Waves, you talk about how your wife really struggled with it, uh, with like, finding out that you weren't a Christian anymore, and it took her a while, and I, she seemed to stay like, pretty like, traditional longer than you did, so how did she, what was the best way she loved you through finding your own spiritual path without pressuring you to conform to hers? Like how, what was the best way she loved and respected your own journey? That is a great question. I mean, that was really hard. My wife is the best person I know. And she has like all this shame and insecurity because she's like a woman who grew up in the evangelical church. And, uh, and she's plus size, so she has like tons and tons and tons of body shame. And I'm like, how can you have body shame? I have no body shame. And I'm like more plus size than you oh, wait, I'm a dude. I mean, it's like literally a TV trope. It's like fat comedian character with like very thin, beautiful, stereotypically presented woman. Because like, I'm not judged on my appearance, but she is. So it's hard for me to separate like the crisis she felt with my faith transition from the fact that that shift in my 
epistemological and theological orientation immediately started making me question a lot of social assumptions in our community. Um, and I think the faith stuff was easier for her than like me, like, hey, what if radical feminism is the thing? <laughs> Those were like really hard years in our marriage. She, she did pressure me to like return to faith all the way up until she lost hers. And now the shoe is so on the other foot. I'm like, hey, Jenny, you want to try church this week? Pass. Do you want to pray with the girls? Pass. My wife does the same thing. Yeah, it's like over, like no interest. So the thing Jenny did best was never question, was never attach the continuation of our relationship to anything I believed. Like there was a, just a subtext we know, you go where you're gonna go and it stresses me all out and I'm pretty pissed off, frankly. But that, that doesn't mean I'm, I'm not putting strings on our relationship. And she committed to, despite incredible mutual discomfort, continuing to have a conversation about where we were at and where we were going to talk about the fear she felt, we both felt, of like, if anyone figures out what I believe, it's gonna be torches and pitchfork time. Because like, you read the book, Deacon, Sunday School Teacher, hey, what if God's not real? It's just like not a good convo in the evangelical church. Um, but it was her like, not just resolve to be committed to me, but her resolve to communicate that she was committed to me, which is what I see most different in all the emails I get from people in internet land who are like, my husband, my wife, my partner said, if I don't get a hold of this, it's over. And uh, I'm not the guy who like sets the framework for other people's relationships. But that's a hard degree of separation to ever cross again. Like if you can't be blank, we can't be at all. I think there's certainly a space for that. Um, if you can't respect my human dignity, we can't be. I think that's great. If you can't be with me without emotionally, physically, verbally abusing me, we can't be. I think that's great. But, you know, you voted for a Democrat candidate, <laughs> so we can't be. I mean, that's just horseshit. Maybe that one just needs to sail anyway. Um, but I think if relationships are really hard, and I've, I, I've kind of done with like marriage as an institution, I don't even think of it that way. Yeah. What works for me now is like, Jenny and I have an ongoing negotiated consensus of what the two of us look like. And we just talk about it. And we don't make assumptions of like, well, we said this thing on an altar in a church we don't go to anymore 20 years ago. So those are the terms, right? No, we talk it out all the time. Um, and for us, that's led to like, Jenny and I have never been closer despite, I don't think we've agreed fundamentally on what reality is for the last six years. Just who gives a shit, right? Like, what, what's the juice in relationship? It is like, we agree on the nature and character of God. Or Rochambeau for bedtime with the kids tonight. 
Like, where's the juice? And I think the juice is Rochambeau. I think the juice is like me saying, like, for the love of God, Jenny, go home and rest in a bed. Don't sleep in the chair in the hospital. I'll be okay until tomorrow. Um, this, like, mutual... It's not for everybody. I just, I don't have any question about who I'm going out with Friday night. And that's the juice for me, and I think that's the juice for her, and that works for us. May or may not work for anybody else. Okay, we break away just for a second from that live recording of Wild Goose. Back to my studio in Los Angeles just to tell you about KiwiCo. KiwiCo is a sponsor of Ask Science Mike, and they're a really amazing company that makes learning products for children. They do this in the form of these crates that you get in the mail that are centered around learning about science, technology, engineering, arts, and math. Uh, Both of my kids, who are 11, excuse me, now 12 and 14, love them, but they also make great products for kids of all ages. I really enjoy the pictures that listeners send me of their children uh, building kiwi crates. And as a listener of Ask Science Mike, you can get a crate completely for free by going to kiwico.com slash science. Again, that's kiwico.com slash science, where you can learn more and get a crate for your kids completely free. Hey, um, my name is Caitlin, and my question is, um, so I have a family member who is on the spectrum, um, and they have co-occurring things going on too. Um, And I was just wondering, they're kind of coming into the career world now, um, and school's not really an option for them. So I know school wasn't really, you were like, nah, not for me. Um, So I was just wondering if there's anything that I could, that maybe you think someone should have done for you, or something I could do for that person to support them in this new stage um, that might be helpful. Okay, thank you, that is a really, I'm still so scared to talk about issues around autism because it, I don't even think it's been a full year that I've been diagnosed with autism. So I'm learning. As I learn, I'm starting to like refactor a lot of life experiences. Like, oh, that's what happened. I know that statistically, autistic people are much less likely to be able to hold down a job and much less likely to hold down a romantic relationship. It's, it's much, much less. And I'm so aware of the ways in which I got to cheat. One, evangelical patriarchy. Like as long as I fit like a very pre-described prescriptive role of who I was, I was a good husband. So then I, oh boy, did I study like, I read the Bible all the time. I'll be the best biblical husband in the history of biblical husbands. And then two, like my particular challenges also enable like some pretty incredible strengths. I can read a little over 1,700 words a minute for nonfiction books, and I remember most of what I read. And I'm really good with computers. And to be clear, when I say really good, I mean fucking incredible. (laughs) And, uh, And I'm good at talking on stage, and most people are afraid of public speaking, but that part of my brain never wired. I've always just been like, oh, I'm more comfortable. Like, you see me now, right? When, in a few minutes when I'm right here, my, I'm just gonna be like, oh, hi. Uh, yes, I'm so glad to see you. It's just, for some reason, I'm more comfortable here than like 
at the dinner table with my family. Um, it's because I get to aggregate all your social cues into a single blob, which is easier for my supercomputer brain than one person's feelings. And what that means is my disability meant that it was economically advantageous for very large corporations to pay for accommodations because they could take my skill set and make hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, that's not the normative experience for people on the spectrum. So the most valuable thing I've learned in conversation and dialogue with leaders and advocates in the autism community is once you've met an autistic person, you've met an autistic person. There's no like universal, this is what you do for autistic people. Like any other person, you get to know them, you look at their unique challenges. So what does that look like for me? I basically don't text or call people ever, including uh, people I'm married to and or a father of. It's just not a thing that I do. So people who like really want to be in a relationship with me just know like, okay, I'm the one who texts and he'll respond-ish. Might be better to call. I actually answer calls, which is like, I know millennials and Gen Z so backwards and horrifying that I really don't do text-based communication, but I'll talk on the phone, it triggers your social anxiety. That's what happens when disability meets disability, folks. We just gotta come to some consensus. Um, I actually think you're in a better position to know what to do than I am. All I do know is that something I've heard from myself and a lot of autistic people is we don't know what we need. If I'm left alone, um, to my own devices, at some point I begin to shake and I get very angry. And uh, it's because I don't think to eat. So someone in my life has to say, hey, now is eating time. And now if we eat, you're going to feel better. And by the time I get like hangry, I, I fucking hate eating. Like, but we got to solve all these problems. And what is your problem? Like, I, I become a different person. And I, I think that's why autistic people so often have relationship challenges, because, like, a lot of people aren't willing to carry somebody else's water. But I do know that when autistic people are in relationships, often there is no one more loyal or faithful or totally fucking obsessed with another person as my friends who are also on the spectrum. But I, I hope everything goes well. Hi. 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 I'm a seven. What's your number? No. Um, <laughs> uh, Twelve. <laughs> um, I am a seven, though. But, uh, <laughs> okay, so Nine. last year at Wild Goose, I met with a spiritual director, and it kind of set me on this, like, trajectory of uh, wanting to live authentically myself and not try to be someone else. Uh, and so I've been really trying to do that. And I realized in conversations with my husband just over the last week or so that I struggle a lot with guilt. So it mainly comes in my family relationships with the kids and my husband. He says, you don't have to um, you don't have to cook dinner. You hate cooking dinner. Why are you cooking dinner? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, you said that, but 
you're not cooking dinner, so I guess I have to. And we play, I play these games. I don't mean to, but it happens. And um, Or like, I, I should be the one to do homework with the kids because I'm, I guess, the mom, and I should do that. But I hate it. <laughs> it's terrible. Um, and I love my kids, but I'm trying, I feel like I've, I just realized that it's because it's I feel really guilty about that, or even just being a, a wife and... I'll do things because that's what I think I should do versus just being like, no, I want to take the kids on adventures and I want to mow the lawn and I like grilling and it's okay. Um, my husband doesn't like grilling or anything like that. So we have a lot of gender reversal in our marriage too. So I've been thinking a lot about it, but I'm just not quite sure how to get you know going with, I don't know if it's self-talk but do you have any advice for maybe some steps to take of how to not do that? <laughs> Does that make sense? I hope it makes sense. Yeah, it makes total sense. And I'm going to lean hard into the, like, I honor questions by always responding to them, even if I feel like I'm the last person who should ever respond to them. I have some corollary to your experience. I hate most of the straight white male masculine experience and presentation. I think like what we do is just remind ourselves for ease of stacking boxes, basically, the world wants us to be in boxes. And we're all, we all participate in that. You know what I mean? I love like the first step of like a formerly non-even, a non-affirming evangelical person. They become affirming and then it's like the rush for the gay best friend. Like they just can't wait to have a gay best friend. Oh my gosh, it's going to be so amazing when I have a gay best friend. I'm going to be so cool and have such great social signals. And then when they like meet a gay person, they're like, God, you don't even talk with a lisp. Like, what is happening? I thought, I thought we were going to be like a great sitcom together. But you're just like a person. We all do it. Fellow white people, anybody love to tell your friends of color about how racist Thanksgiving was? You're not the only one doing that. But we're social primates. Like, scripts help us navigate the complexity of life, and so we must have a discipline of crumpling up and throwing away the scripts. That's it. Guess what? I hate to take out the trash. I hate it. That is the one part of patriarchy my wife is all for. <laughs> she won't take out the trash. But as we have started to renegotiate what our marriage looks like in the context of it, you don't have to do that because that's a girl thing and I don't have to do this because it's a boy thing, we figured out there's some things like Jenny really wants to be in charge of the relationship. And I don't. Great. Great. Head of household, Jenny, done. Right? No problem. It's actually always been that way. Now we just name it. So there's like, there's those great things. There's the other thing that's like, hey, I love to cook, meaning Jenny, you literally set pots on fire. <laughs> I think I'm just going to cook even if that's a gender script thing. But then there's things both of us are like, pass, like the trash. 
So the things that neither of us want to do, we share them. The things that both of us want to do, we share them. And then when you have those wonderful serendipitous moments of like, I don't want to do that. I do want to do that. I do the books. She doesn't even want to hear about the bills, right? She doesn't even want, like, no, don't even brief me. Like, that's super unhealthy. You need to know. You're being disempowered. Um, like, if I died, you'd be like, what bank do we have? <laughs> like, literally, they're actually like, hey, the kids need to take some cash. They got a school trip. And I'm like, okay, go to the ATM. She's like, I don't know where my debit card is, and I don't know my PIN number. Cool. Be right back. Just do it on purpose. There's no like, I don't think there's any special practice have to wake up every day and be like, I am who I am and my life will be what I make it. That's it. Um, and then sometimes it won't be. You're a woman. Sometimes people are going to be like, hey, actually, no, you can't do that. And that's how you know who to cut out of your life. It's just that easy. You don't have to play footsie with the patriarchy except at work. Fuck. It's almost like marginalized people can't escape systemic life experiences. I have a very odd life experience where I'm like aware of the way people like me present. They get like a little bit of, not a little bit, like a lot of a red carpet rolled out. So I just like talk about that on stage. And it actually feels like kind of shameful for me to even disclose and admit. And then I do that and then people come afterwards and they're like, I've never heard a white man talk like that. I should never fucking hear that again, white men in this room. Part... Only the girls clapped. Jesus. I hope it's because you're like, oh, that's true. White men, we're our own oppressors. That's it. I, we do retreats in Ken, um, and the liturgy is called Ken. That's about taking apart masculinity. They're very valuable. They're led by a woman as they should be. We're our own oppressors, but... We're everybody else's oppressors. So we have to show up and take this shit apart. We have to show up and partner in taking it apart, which means taking direction from the people who are actually impacted by the oppression. We have to do our work. We have to go to therapy so we don't panic when somebody says the word toxic masculinity. We have to go to therapy so we don't panic when somebody says the words white supremacy. If we can't name it, we can't do jack shit about it. But guess what? I'm brilliant. I am so brilliant. Oh my God, I really am. I'm only learning this recently. But I'm not the person to talk about and figure out how to take apart white supremacy or patriarchy or heterosexism. I'm the guy who should take every bit of social capital out of my account and cash the account until it's gone in submission to and under the leadership of the people whose lives are most impacted by mine. And that is the conclusion of our live podcast. So I want to thank Andrew Galucky for pre-production, uh, Brent Cradle for management. I want to thank Greg Nordine for sound editing, Jeb Botterford for the theme song, and all of you for being here. Thanks for being here.